people will be very amazed usually that they really feel better without having a cost, right? They, they feel like they've gotten back to being non-depressed, but they don't have a side effect cost they've had to incur during that process. I was never planning to have a sponsor for the show unless it was something I really believed in. I've always believed in therapy, and I really believe in BetterHelp.com. Not only do I believe in them, but I'm a client of theirs as well. Registering was simple, and you can choose from various packages, some that start as low as $60 a week. You can utilize email, text, instant messaging, or video chat for your counseling. Some packages include unlimited contact. One of the best features is that you can connect with your therapist no matter where you are. How cool is that? If you're out of town, you can still have your regularly scheduled session or connect with your therapist from anywhere in the world. Sign up now at BetterHelp.com slash The Depression Files and get 10% off your first month. That was BetterHelp.com slash The Depression Files. It's a professional, accessible, affordable, and convenient. Why not give it a shot? Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is your host, Al Levin. I am very excited today. We are taking another deep dive into a topic around mental health and mental illness, and uh, today's topic is related to TMS, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation, and further advancements in that. So I'm really excited. On the line, we have Dr. Nolan Williams. Dr. Williams is an assistant professor within the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and the director of the Stanford Brain Stimulation Lab. Dr. Williams has a broad background in neuropsychiatry and is double board certified in both neurology and psychiatry. He has published papers in high-impact peer-reviewed journals, including Brain, American Journal of Psychiatry, and the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. He has also contributed to two reviews related to novel therapeutics for neuropsychiatric conditions that have been published in the Journal of Clinical Investigation and Current Opinion in Neurobiology, which are both highly cited. Dr. Williams, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. You know, first of all, it, it seems to me that TMS, again, that's transcranial magnetic stimulation, uh, as a function of working towards treating depression, still just does not seem all that mainstream. And I'm wondering if we could start by you sharing, maybe in as much layman's terms as you can, just exactly what TMS is. Yeah, so transcranial magnetic stimulation is a, um, a type of neuromodulation. So neuromodulation is kind of the umbrella term, brain stimulation is the umbrella term, and TMS is a type of that. And the idea of why one would use a magnet to stimulate the brain goes back to 
Michael Faraday and Faraday's law, this idea that if you pulse a magnet, you can generate a current underneath it. And so we've known that for a long time, that if you create an electromagnet and you pulse that electromagnet, then current is, um, is kind of generated under the coil. And so, you know, there have been attempts for electrical brain stimulation through skin. You know, even today, there's, there's devices called transcranial direct current stimulators and transcranial alternating current stimulators. The problem with those devices is that they, they can't get up to an amplitude that's high enough to depolarize cortical neurons and at the same time not burn the skin, right? And so, so that's a real limitation for those devices. And so those devices historically have not really been used for depolarizing neuromodulation because you would have a safety concern there. TMS bypasses that because the electrical current generated with a pulse of, of, of uh, electromagnet is, um, is only in electrically conducting substances. And so the skin, the scalp, the skull, all those, those things are not electrically conducting. And because they're not, when you pulse that magnet over that brain region, it's really only things like the, the neurons themselves that are electrically conducting. So it's a really elegant way of turning the brain on and off without really affecting any of the other tissues around the brain. And so that's why TMS became a very popular thing to do as far as treatment goes is because it allows for us to isolate the brain itself and move the dial on the brain itself. And so that's, you know, why historically people have been looking into it, why, why I personally have, have focused a lot of my career on, on trying to develop it. So that's, that's really incredible. So what you're saying essentially is that there's a group of neurons within one kind of area of the brain or one circuit that is shut off when one is dealing with depression. And the idea of the TMS is to get that thing firing once again. Yeah, it's a great question. So um, so the idea is that in depression, at the circuit level, there is a dysfunction um, between two brain regions, one in the actual prefrontal cortex that's kind of a governor or regulator of things, and it's called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And the other area is an area deeper in the brain called the subgenual or subcolossal cingulate, uh, a part of the anterior cingulate cortex. And so... If you look at the anterior, the subgenual anterior cingulate cortex in people that are depressed, it's much more highly active than people that are not depressed. So depressed people have three, four, five times as much activity there as a non-depressed individual. And so that's, that's important to understand. And the activity in the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is down, so it's lower than in a non-depressed individual. And so... How that plays out is that people experience depression as being, you know, semi semi volitional, right? You you can do some stuff, but you can't. You feel like the depression's really kind of taken over your um, your ability to kind of fully do what you want to do and experience what you want to experience, right? And that's that's actually a direct reflection of the circuitry, the circuit abnormality, right? That that hyperactive subgenual cingulate is taken over and changed the way that certain neural networks interact and the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is unable to do anything about it. 
what TMS does is it turns on, exogenously turns on the part of the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex that's most effective in reducing the subgenual cingulate um, activity and essentially governance over the system. So when you turn, when you turn uh, the DLPFC on, it sends a signal to quiet the subgenual anterior cingulate. And when you do that enough times, it quiets it back down to normal. And then the behavioral experience, the kind of person's experience in all of that is that they no longer feel depressed. They no longer feel ruminative. They no longer feel like they're thinking about negative thoughts and all of that sort of thing. And at the core of that, that's, that's, it makes total sense based off of this kind of engineering description that I just, I just laid out. Right. Right. Uh, which, uh, which it might be a stretch to say that was all layman's terms, but, uh, but it makes a lot of sense. That is re- that's really interesting. Now, I know I've seen pictures of TMS, and the magnet is quite large. I'm wondering how you can pinpoint a particular network that you're working with, and does it, does it have to be specifically targeted? If it hits other circuits within the brain, is that okay? Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, I'll, uh, kind of two questions. So, the first one is, how does it get that focal? So the figure of eight coil is set up. So it's a large coil, but the center of it is the part that actually generates the the pulse. And so it's about a one centimeter diameter kind of area that's being induced. And, and so that kind of narrows it down to be, you know, pretty focal. Um, there are coils like the H coil that was developed out of NIH um, that, you know, Brainsway is commercialized that's much more, broad the thing about you know so you ask is that okay to hit other brain circuits that you know i am not aware of any information to suggest that there are other abnormal things that happen when you when you use a figure of of eight coil or i'm sorry an h coil versus a figure of eight coil so that broadness doesn't seem to to be produce negative side effects there's a question of whether or not the broadness enhances or, or reduces efficacy and that's a question that people have tried to deal with with head-to-head trials where they use kind of ruler measurement dlpfc versus the h coil and that didn't seem to be any different the the issue gets in you know the the real question will ultimately be does a very personalized you know that person's kind of functional network derived coil position improve it over a broad coil like an H coil and that's something that has yet to be compared and so but but the the general thing that's important to understand is that TMS has a very exceedingly low seizure risk like one in 30,000 sessions or something like this it uh you know has this problem of syncope, meaning like kind of dizziness and and a very small percentage of folks. And and really, other than that, there's not really any other side effects. And so people will, um, you know, be very amazed usually that they really feel better without having a cost, right? They they feel like they've gotten back to being non-depressed, but they don't, they don't have a side effect cost they've had to incur during that process. And so that's, Kind of a beautiful thing, if, if, if you get what I'm saying. So. Oh, absolutely. So, so other than a very, very minimal risk of seizure, you're saying there are no risks whatsoever from T- TMS and no side effects, as far as anybody's aware thus far. 
Yeah, I mean, people for conventional TMS, people have been doing it for 30 plus years, right? And so never in that time have there been any any evidence of side effects beyond the seizure risk. And so it's a pretty, you know, headache and these kind of minor things, but it's a, it's a very safe thing to do. So. And then, you know, you mentioned 30 years or so, I think it was approved for treating depression only in 2008. Is that right? Yeah. But I, I guess I'm saying like people were, were doing, you know, experiments with TMS for depression since 95. So okay. there was a fair amount of people that had been exposed since 95. And so if there was, if there was going to be a, you know, a side effect that took a while to kind of show up, it, it you know, it hasn't happened yet. So. Right. Right. And so the, the firing of the neurons and so forth that the TMS is helping activate, is that similar to, I've heard of implants for electrical stimulation of the brain where there are actually implants put in maybe for Parkinson's or for tremors. Is it, is, it seems almost like TMS may have evolved from that. Um, the ideas came up around the same time. So if you trace TMS back, the first publication by Tony Barker in the Lancet was in 85. The first deep brain stimulation tremor publication was in 87. Um, and so there was, you know, they kind of co-developed around the same time. You know, there's a view that I that I hold that a couple of, you know, my kind of colleagues hold that TMS and deep brain stimulation are really doing similar sorts of things to brain networks. They're really modulating entire, you know, neural networks. And so in that way, it's very similar. But I, I wouldn't say that that TMS grew out of DBS. I think they kind of co-occurred. Okay. Okay. And obviously the TMS involves no kind of intrusive measures, which makes it incredible as well. Yeah. What about, so you talk a lot about the circuits and the neurons. Is any of this related to the talk of chemical imbalances when people talk about a possible chemical imbalance in the brain? Yeah. I mean, so chemical imbalances are, you know, it's a concept that we kind of happened in the eighties, I guess. And, you know, is a reflection of, of the ideas of why neurotransmitter altering drugs are effective or somewhat effective. Um, you know, is there some truth to that? Maybe is it uh, the story that makes any level of sense for for this sort of thing? You know, it, it's really it's really at a different scale that we're looking at this. You know, we're really looking at it from the scale of the neural network, not from the scale of the, of the synapse. And so until we get better tools, it'll be hard to tell if this is in fact, you know, there is a detriment, uh, there is a, an actual problem with the neurotransmitters and this is somehow correcting that problem. That's still a ways away before we have tools that could actually prove that it's that that's right. much more of a, kind of a colloquial kind of statement that doctors somehow sometimes make or whatever. But so I guess what I'm wondering is the TMS and what it's doing to the circuitry, is that impacting chemicals and is that part of the reaction? Like suddenly there's more cortisol staying in the brain um, or so, dopamine. 
Yeah, so what we do know from pet studies is that TMS looks like it affects dopamine. Is that the reason why it works? Nobody knows because those studies weren't done. We just know that if if you stimulate with TMS, you can see a dopamine, you know, what on pet reflects a dopamine release. But is that uh, correcting a dopamine deficiency? We don't know that, right? So just because dopamine gets released doesn't mean that that even has anything to do with it. You know, it could just be a right. random effect. It could be central to the effect, you know? Yeah, it's that it, the reason I ask and what's so fascinating to me is it seems that TMS is being based on a theory that depression is due to circuitry malfunction within the brain, whereas there yeah. are other theories, the chemical imbalance theory, which some also say is, you know, a theory put out by the big pharma so they can put out all the antidepressants that they've put out. And then there are theories about the, the gut biome and the gut brain connection. So, I mean, if we could eventually one day know what is the cause, and I'm wondering also if there are multiple causes and multiple different types of depression that we aren't even aware of yet. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's definitely a lot of people think that is the, you know, potential, um, the potential situation, right, where, where there's, uh, you know, there's potentially multiple types of depression mediated by multiple different kind of pathophysiologies and multiple treatments around that. So that's certainly a... Uh, a, a possible future finding, right? And, and friends of mine have been working on that, like Connor Liston and others. And so, um, yeah, I mean, there. This is a very early point. We're probably at the equivalent of like 1950s cardiology right now in psychiatry, as far as what we know, what we can do, what we actually have diagnostic tests for, all that stuff. Very, very early in this equation. And so that's why there's not that much in the way of answers. We've tried to answer some of these questions by developing probes. Um, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it's still a big question mark for sure. You know? So it's interesting to me that you mentioned like comparing it, you know, to the 1950s in other fields of medicine. And I often talk about that when I'm thinking of medications, like how can we be so advanced in the medical field Yet you take an antidepressant and wait four to six weeks to see if it works to then take another one to see if that works. And it seems like such a guessing game. And we're talking about people who may be suicidal or can't get out of bed. And it just shocks me. And the only thing I can think of is it's just because of the complexity of the brain. But I'm wondering, is there more to it? Is there a, a reason we're so far behind in the work of the brain and, and treatment of depression? It's the complexity piece. Uh, that's yeah. it's just too yeah. you know there are ways to get there faster but they wouldn't be ethical right and that's okay. really the like problem with a lot of this stuff right like so you know we really need direct brain recordings right and so if we had direct brain recordings and we you know we could record from the brain of 500 depressed patients directly we get a lot of information about what it was but then how do you justify that? Right. right. And so you get into this catch-22 situation where it's very hard to justify it. Um, and so you can't really get any, any further. And so what we, you know, what I've been very focused on is trying to um, 
trying to get access by developing therapeutics, right? And so can we develop a treatment that works well enough to justify getting access and then uh, use that access to make the treatment better, right? And that really, to me, is the only ethically justifiable way of learning more, right? Everything else would, wouldn't make much sense, you know, to expose people at risk. But if we can get a treatment that works, you know, quite well for some people at least, then we can push, push that forward. And then we, we have the ability to then study all of it and then make an edu- more of an educated um, determination of what to do. That makes a lot of sense. Ethics obviously are, are an important piece of research. So, I, you know, one of the reasons I reached out to you also was because you have taken TMS and you've really taken it to a new level through your research. And this is really recent stuff, as far as I could tell, where you've um, developed something that you call SAINT, the, the Stanford Accelerated Intelligent Neuromodulation Therapy. Um, which is stimulation for depressive symptoms. And so you've taken TMS, it's my understanding, and almost kind of ramped it up. And I'm wondering if you can share with us what you've done uh, through this process. Yeah, so we've, um, we've realized that the way that TMS has been administered, you know, um, historically has been, you know, probably a, l- a little bit too conservative, you know, in the sense that um, we weren't giving very much and kind of give you a sense of, so you talked about deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's earlier. So if you, um, if you put one of those into a Parkinson's patient, there's about a half a million pulses delivered all day long, right? And with TMS, we're only giving 3,000 pulses, you know, for 40 minutes a day, right? And so what we realize is that there's a, that TMS has not had a dose response curve, has not been vetted for kind of higher dose sort of situations. And when when you do that, you do that in a way that's actually aligned with the way that the brain thinks and learns, then you actually send a very robust signal into the system and produce a very robust change in, um, in the neural network, uh, you know, in a very quick period of time, right? The other piece of it is we developed this targeting procedure where we're able to use people's own um, resting state scans to find the best um, position in the within the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And so this kind of idea of stimulating in the right place in a neurophysiologically relevant way for the right dose is really what you have to do with TMS is kind of the mantra of this method and kind of our, our lab's intent. And so that's kind of what, um, what we've been working on. So when you say a higher dose, are you talking about faster pulsations or, and, uh, or longer time periods within one session? Yeah. So we give, we give nine minutes of intermittent data burst, which is the equivalent of 120 minutes of conventional TMS. So it's a much more physiologically relevant way of stimulating every hour on the hour for um, 10 hours. And so we can give a whole six week course of TMS in a day. And then we get five times that. So we give about seven and a half months worth of TMS in a, in, a, in, a, in an individualized targeting procedure over five days. And we can get, you know, in our open label study, 90% of people well in that period of time. Do, so do you see actually better efficacy and quicker efficacy from compared to TMS? 
Yeah. So I, you know, we see, um, you, we, we haven't done a comparator trial, right? So in order to answer that question, you have to do an actual trial where you randomize people to normal TMS or this, but the effect sizes, which is kind of a way of comparing our effect sizes is, is like three times that of conventional TMS. Wow. So, okay. That's fantastic. And typically how long does, this doesn't cure the depression. It's not gone forever, I'm guessing. So how long do, yeah, no. does it last, the remission of depression, and how quickly does it come back? And I would imagine it's variable. I mean, for example, I've had two major bouts of depression, but it's been many years since I've had any, and I hope that was my last bout. And others, you know, yeah. so everybody's kind of, um, their pattern of how often they get depression. Some get it every three months, they go through a depression. Some every day they have some. So I don't know how you would really be able to tell, but I'm wondering if there's a, a common thread of how frequently you have to have a patient return to then go through another series. Yeah, so it's, you know, they need to they need to come in depending upon how treatment resistant they are, right? So in the most extreme forms where they fail electroshock therapy, it's pretty frequent, right? Um, in the um, in, in somebody that's failed, like say four medications over their lifetime, you know, we've seen those people hold it for a year. Wow. Um, yeah, so it just really depends on you know how how bad off they are. So yeah, one thing that was interesting to me, and you just mentioned, you know, a patient who may have failed four medications. One of the pieces I've heard about, you know, being kind of qualifying for to be a TMS candidate um, or maybe for the saint um, therapy as well is that you have to it's it's really targeting treatment resistant depression. And I noticed that you define that by by one failed antidepressant med. And I've seen it oftentimes described as two failed antidepressant meds. And I'm wondering, is there an actual definition that's consistent amongst the the field of mental health related to what does constitute treatment resistant depression yeah so the original tms trials were one failed medication um you know people have written about this and kind of pushed you know that this is um i don't want to say it's controversial but it's it's just one of these things where like they're just different definitions, but from the standpoint of TMS, it's um, it's one uh, one failed antidepressant trial is is the is the low bound. If you look at our our paper, you know maybe there's one person like that. I don't know, but we had an average, I think, of like nine failed medications or something. So these were really extremely severely treatment resistant folks that that we published on, you know, in a brain study we published a couple of years ago, you know, I had people in there that failed 30 medications, you know, oh my so God. that is, that's a, right. I mean, that just makes me think again, how far behind we are. Somebody who has to go through 30 different medications. And I think about the time that it ta has taken somebody living with depression to get through 30 different meds. Even just when you said nine, I was, you know, shocked. So what about does, is TMS or Saint, uh, is it known to curb suicidality, people who are coming in with suicide ideations? Um, yeah, so we, we saw in several trials, in that open label trial and in an inpatient-based trial we haven't published yet, 
um, pretty profound suicidal ideation reduction. So that's awesome. And uh, you have increased the dose of typical TMS. Where where does that end? I mean, if there's no detriment, it's a great question. Yeah, no detriment yeah. to TMS, and you're ramping up the the dose. Why not double and triple that? You know, it's 50 hours of time in the TMS chair, um, you know, so it's quite a bit of time for Saint. It's, and so we haven't, you know, really tried to consistently go after pushing past that, but there are certain people where, you know, that may be, you know, that may be a useful thing to do and people that have failed electroconvulsive therapy that relapse quickly or something like that. So, you know, there, there's no toxicity effects that we've seen is kind of what you're getting at. It, it looks like it's non-toxic. And that's, um, so yeah. And so where do you go from here? Well, we're pushing forward to, you know, to try to get this thing FDA approved. So that's our, that's our game plan right now is to get this thing, um, approved. So, and so if, if it was to say be FDA approved, could you then ramp up the dosage even more or typically would you have to go through another FDA trial and so forth? Yeah, I mean, we're going to, we're you know, try to explore that a little bit more with the FDA and see kind of how they're thinking about it. Yeah, so. Right. Okay, awesome. So my last question for you, Dr. Williams, is just, uh, I ask this on every show, just wondering if you, if somebody is listening to the show right now and they're dealing with depression or something that they believe could be depression, what what's one piece of advice that you'd have for them? Yeah, I mean, I think don't give up. You know, this is a different time than 50 years ago when, you know, we uh, we knew even way less than now. I think in our lifetime, we're going to have a real handle on this. Um, and so just don't give up and reach out to folks in your area to look into TMS and other potential therapies. So. Awesome. Thank you so much. So, Dr. Williams, I want to thank you for your time to be on the Depression Files. And really, really, I... I do want to thank you for the work you're doing and the advancement you're giving to treatments for depression. I think, you know, it seems like such limited research is out there around improving antidepressants or anything else. We do have ketamine, which has recently come out, but this is a, an incredible alternative for people to learn about, particularly with such little to no risks or side effects. So thank you for the work you're doing. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Nice to meet you there. All right. Awesome. Thanks. And make sure you stay healthy. Yeah, you too. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.